Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Milford House Mysteries on the BookSpeak Network with co-hosts Sherry Knowlton and J.M. West. Our mystery and suspense novels are published by Sunbury Press and its mystery input, Milford House. I'm Sherry Knowlton, um, and I write the Alexa Williams series of books, Dead of Autumn, Dead of Summer, Dead of Spring, and Dead of Winter. Hi, I'm Jody West. That's J.M. I write the Carlisle Crime Cases series, Dying for Vengeance, Courting Doubt in Darkness, Darkness at First Light, How to Die and Fall, and Things Strangled, featuring homicide detectives Christopher Snow and Aaron McCoy on the hunt for the killers. Today on the Milford House Mysteries, we're pleased to have a return visit from a guest with an interesting and eclectic background, um, who has now added fiction uh, author to her resume. Last time we spoke with Pat LaMarche, we talked about her book, The Magic Diary. Today we're going to catch up on that book's success and chat with Pat about two other books um, that she's got uh, in the works. Uh, but we'll also be talking to her about her, her work as a journalist, a homeless advocate, a nonfiction author, politician, and philanthropist. Pat LaMarche describes herself as an activist, advocate, and champion of the underdog. She's also known to tilt other the windmills. Pat was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and educated at Boston College and the University of Amsterdam. I bet there's a story there. She ran for vice president of the United States on the Green Party ticket in 2004. Formerly from Maine, where she worked as a DJ, Pat now makes her home in Carlisle with her husband. Together, they maintain the Charles Bruce Foundation to help artists promote and produce their art. A career journalist, Lamarche has written freelance articles and columns for the Huffington Post, as well as other magazines and media outlets, including articles on the homeless, women, and politics. As a radio personality, Jenny Judge, she has raised millions of dollars for charity. She also worked for Stephen King. Pat's two nonfiction books, Daddy, What's the Middle Class, and Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in America, in the United States, have garnered national attention. She's the author of one published children's book, The Special Present. Her first novel, The Magic Diary, describes a young girl fighting cancer and coping with a distracted mother and an absent father. Luckily, she has a supportive Nana. Her English teacher gives her a magic diary to write about her experiences, and she also hears from strange visitors from our past. Pat's new book, Princess of the Park, depicts one of the major social injustices of our day, homelessnesses. Pat, welcome to Milford House Mysteries, and correct me on that, the title of the, of the homeless book. Oh, uh, left out in America, the state of homelessness in the United States. 
That's States, kind of the alliteration right? of all that state, 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 state. Okay. I didn't name it. I didn't title it. The first publisher, I had a publisher back in 2005 who I couldn't title the book. I, I, it just it was such an emotional book for me, and so my publisher titled it. So I don't I don't remember the name half the time. <laughs> her work. <laughs> Well, um, let's give uh, our listeners a chance to get to know you first, Pat, um, and we'll we'll ask one of those like interview questions. Uh, which one of your varied jobs in your very unique career did you enjoy the most or remember the most vividly? Oh wow, wow! What a question. <laughs> uh, um, I you know I got to say, mom. Being a mom was the best job I ever had, um, and now I get yeah. My kids, you know, I I kind of drove me crazy when people say you like your grandchildren better than your kids because you don't like anybody better than your kids. You know, it's just I do love my grandchildren as much as my kids, but so that was the sappy answer. Um, which job did I like the best? Wow, that is such a toughie. Um, I think maybe writing for the Bangor Daily News, which was a newspaper up in um, up in Bangor, Maine, but it, it's a pretty it's got a far flung audience. It was the largest daily newspaper in Maine, and um, I would write for them occasionally just to have a piece or two on the opinion page. And then um, the American icon Molly Ivins died, um, and I, of course you remember, remember. Molly Ivins. The, Satirical writer and an opinion uh-huh. piece writer from from Texas. Um, she died, and the Bangor Daily News uh, editorial page uh, editor called me and asked if I would take her place in the paper. And I have never been more flattered or honored in my life. And wow. so I wrote, uh, yeah, I wrote the piece in the space Molly had had for about. I don't know, 10 years or so after that, seven years, a long, long, long time. I had Molly's spot and that, that was, that was fun, you know, and I love deadlines. All writers, I think love deadlines because it, it gets you to stop crocheting in front of an old movie and actually <laughs> get back to work. Um, so uh, having a regular, very regular piece that appeared every single week in, in that spot was nice because it made my, my brain was forced to think. And I really liked that. Hmm. That's well. Let's have some more information about your work in the media, both in radio and print journalism. Can you describe the Jenny Judge persona? Oh yeah. So uh, you know, I was a morning disc jockey for a long, long time, and um, I had actually started in television. I started working in um, in video, and uh, the hours were not great. And I was a single mom, so I had the opportunity to make the move to radio which as a radio morning show host is they were great hours as long as I could get my kids off to school I was I was home every day when they got off the bus and that was a big help as a single mom so um when uh I got hired to be a radio personality while I was running for governor of the state of Maine and I couldn't use my real name and most radio personalities don't use their real name anyway but um I couldn't use my real name because of equal time you know You'd have mm-hmm. to allow the other my my opponents on the radio, um, right? And uh, I remember one time someone found out who I actually was that I was actually Pat Lamarche and not Jenny Judge, and they said we want equal time. And my boss said, "We'll give equal time as long as they're funny. You use a fake name and they're funny." 
So uh, and nobody jumped at that chance because most, most of the people I was running against weren't very funny. Um, but uh, so I, uh, you know, my job was just to to make people not dread getting out of bed in the morning and get in the shower and go to work. So I was a morning host for a long time. But when I got that job and I had to have a fake name, it was also two weeks after my mom died. And Jenny Judge oh. was my mother's maiden name. So oh, I you didn't know, know that. I used oh. to. Yeah, I used to joke that Jenny Judge used to pay my bills until she died, and then Jenny Judge still paid my bills <laughs> because I used her name when they make to make a yeah. living. But um, yeah, that's my mom's name, so it was a very, very tender and important name to me. Oh, oh you're, you're you're like pulling at our heartstrings here this afternoon. Oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, here's yet another opportunity because. Uh, Let's let's talk about something that's a little bit more current than your, um, you know. Although I know that you're still a journalist, but uh, one of your most successful nonfiction books uh, is Left Out in America, and we understand that Sunbury Press is reissuing that um, under uh, their banner. And I guess I have um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. But as well, um, are you updating it at all, or um, is, it, is it unchanged, or is it tweaked to um, sort of uh, reflect what's going on today? Um, well, it's all of the, all of the above. Um, okay. I'm really excited that Sunbury is going to release this uh, book. Um, I'm I'm also afraid that they're going to kill me because I promised it in November and I'm still working on it. <laughs> so uh, February. Uh, um, but uh, it's the original book um, has been taught in colleges and uh, used for freshman classes. Because what happened was, and you mentioned I was political. I, I ran for vice president, as you mentioned, um, in 2004. Mm-hmm. And I had an inkling I would lose. It, it came across my mind that I might not actually get to be vice president of the United States. So uh, one of the things I, I – <laughs> Yeah, actually, my you lost uh, to Mr. Cheney, right? Yeah, yes. By 53 million votes to a guy who shot his friend in the face. That hurts my feelings. Um, <laughs> I also lost by 52 million votes to a guy who got his photographer pregnant while his wife was dying of cancer. So I really want to remind people I was the best choice. <laughs> Mine's like being what it is. Um, but uh, so I, I didn't want to waste a year of my life by running for office. And um, which sounds terrible, but when you know you're going to lose, and the only reason that the major parties, the the minor parties still run for major offices is because most ballot access laws in most states, and those, they say whether or not a party can exist, they require you run someone for for president and vice president. They require you to run someone for the top of the ticket, or the party cannot exist in Pennsylvania or Maine or Alabama or Georgia. So if you don't run someone for the top of the ticket, they, they take away your party status. So the point of it was, so the Green Party could exist in small states where they were winning school board elections and water board elections and all these other things. Mm-hmm. If you didn't run at the top, you didn't have a party. So that's why I was willing to run, um, but I didn't want to waste my, my years. So I lived in homeless shelters while I ran. And uh, that was the only national press we got on the whole campaign was, you know, if you're sleeping in a homeless shelter tonight, when you roll over, you might be next to a vice presidential candidate. 
Um, so uh, I, I knew that these people I was meeting were important, and I took copious notes. I traveled the country with nothing but a sleeping bag, a pillow, which I ended up giving away in Chicago, um, and then uh, one change of clothes, one credit card, a cell phone, and my ID, and that which I lost in an airport, which was a real – all of this is in the book. Um, and so uh, I, I wrote this book about the people I met. So the book is actually just a series of stories about the people I met on that ride, uh, on that crazy okay. trip around the country. And then the updated one, because it's 15 years old in 2020, the book's 15. So the updated mm-hmm. one is that original book, as it is, exactly the way it is, with about 150 new pages. Oh, about what okay. has and hasn't happened in the last 15 years. So in the last 15 years, personally, someone read my book, a minister in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, called me up and said, why don't you come live in Carlisle, Pennsylvania and help us with the homeless? And that's how I got to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, Mm -hmm. And then as a director of a shelter, and actually several shelters in in the 15 years, I learned about homelessness because I I didn't know what I was doing when when I first did it. So then I understood the, the housing and urban development laws and the health and human services laws and the McKinney-Vento Homeless Education Act was passed. And so all these things happened in the last 15 years. And so that doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it's, it's the background of what's going on in today. Um, all of that is in the front half of this book. This, and, and it culminates, the front half, the front 150 pages culminates with Paradise, California, and the campfire that devastated um, the town of Paradise and made 20,000 people homeless in 90 minutes. You and were just out the there IAM, not too long ago, right, on site? Right. I went out there. Um, I interviewed an amazing number of people, uh, to include, though, the president of uh, Melissa Crick, the president of the uh, school board, uh, the superintendent of schools. I mean, what happens when every single child in your school is now a homeless child? If, when you have a school with nothing but homeless children in it, um, which is what they have right now. So it, um, it, it's been an amazing honor to be out there and have so many people speak openly to me about their experiences. First, escaping a, a, an inferno and men trying to live homeless for eight months living in your car. <clears throat> you know, when the, when the rescue people showed up, FEMA and the Red Cross and those groups, they took the hotel rooms. So then the homeless people couldn't <laughs> even get a hotel room. <laughs> you know, the things that happen in... And, and, and my belief is we, these are just getting worse. I was at Hurricane Katrina as a journalist, and I do compare in the book how Katrina was handled versus paradise, but, but we mm-hmm. are going to have these climate events more and more and more often, and we need to have, make a plan for these massive homeless events, uh, and we don't have one right now. So that, anyway, that's, that's the book, the new book. So are you including the paradise, the paradise in uh, the new part, the new book? Right. Yeah. The paradise will be the, uh, the stories of the people in paradise and what, what's going on there. And Mm -hmm. I'm pulling forward a few stories from Katrina because actually I was a journalist writing for the Brunswick times record when I was at at Katrina. So I (laughs) had stories of the people that were displaced by that flood, which was another massive Mm -hmm. homeless event. Um, you know, I, I was stationed with, I was embedded with the Red Cross, and I was at uh, the River Center shelter in Baton Rouge with 7,800 homeless people. We all slept under the same roof. 
and these people showered with fire hoses. Uh, there was no, you know, there was martial law. Um, buses pulled up to the front of the, of the um, it was like a Madison Square Garden. They pulled up to the front every day and, and thousands of people would get on the buses and be taken to work because they, mm-hmm. these people had jobs. I mean, when you lose your home in an event like this, you still have a mortgage. Right. Um, if you're renting, if you're renting, you have nothing. Um, if you had your home paid off, like many of the elderly did, they let their insurance drop. Um, oh. That happened a lot in Paris. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, it, I mean, the stories are, I could be writing volumes of books, but it, it's, it's hopefully distilled down enough so that people can get an actual idea of what's happening and then maybe be a little more informed and a little more empathetic and maybe move forward with that. I always, I always kind of hate this conversation because I feel like such a buzzkill. Like, oh, I'm having a nice time listening to the radio. Oh, God, she told me about that poor old man who has nowhere to live. And now, you know, <laughs> and, I've, and I've ruined yet another day, <laughs> you know. Well, but somebody has to bring it to our attention. Well, and it's yeah. quite an well, honor. And, you know, I, I yeah. had a, a, a boss who, uh, uh, when I worked in the uh, Department of, uh, I guess it's now Human Services in Pennsylvania, who said that, you know, we're all just one paycheck away uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, being in a situation uh, that, uh, you know, of homelessness or something. And some of us, of course, aren't really just one paycheck away. But I, I think the point that he was making is um, the people in paradise, they could have had great jobs, right? But mm-hmm. um, it was – a natural disaster. The same people, same with people in Katrina, and uh, people with resources maybe have a better chance of climbing out of it sooner. But um, you know, you sh- you shouldn't. Um, I think you know. He always uh, said that you shouldn't really uh, look down your nose or think, oh, well, that's somebody who's different than me. No, that would never happen to me. Unfortunately, it can happen to you. That was one of the things I found most fascinating. I was flying on the plane into Sacramento, and there was a young couple with a baby next to me going to Chico, which is the big town outside of Paradise that did not catch fire. So it was the closest town that was you know, a decent size that escaped the fire. And these were the first people, literally, I've been doing this for decades. These were the first people I ever met who just looked me in the face and said, Thank God I'm not homeless. You know, they just they they got it that day that that fire was this the paradise the the campfire it's named after the road it caught fire next to it was a, a transformer from PG&E Electric Company that blew up and set fire to the mm-hmm. forest. Um, they these people the fire moved one football field a second. It moved 17 miles in 90 minutes. It, the wow. fire was so enormous, wow. so fast, that these people said, we knew that if the wind changed, we were going to go from not homeless to homeless in, a, in an instant. And they actually got the fact that they were lucky, that it wasn't some, what somebody asked for. <laughs> you know, if there's a house fire in, in the little town next door, that person's just as homeless as the guy in paradise, right? But it's, mm-hmm. but it's not – But nobody focuses on either one of them because it's such a terrible, depressing, awful thing to think about. 
And now these a lot of these people are struggling in paradise because FEMA gave them an initial check of thirty five hundred dollars, and now FEMA is asking people for the money back. Thirty five hundred. That yeah, thirty five hundred. That's FEMA, not going to go far. People rented. I know. No, it doesn't go far. You don't even have cinnamon, right? You don't have any clothes. You don't have any. You, 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 they, if you had, if you were a renter and you had nothing, you could get an initial check of thirty five hundred. Went back in Katrina, that check was two thousand, by the way. So that's what's happened in fifteen <laughs> years. Um, but so you get the initial check of thirty five hundred, and then, let's say you're living in your car in the Walmart. Walmart was hugely generous and opened the, the, there was a camp at Walmart that had hundreds of people living there of the thousands of people that had nowhere to live. Um, but say you were at the camp in Walmart and you didn't get the follow-up from FEMA and you don't have the paperwork because everything you own is gone and it's, it's, it's a distracting, your car burned up or, or your car got destroyed coming off of the ridge because it was, there was so much soot people couldn't see the car in front of them and they slammed into each other. Um, you went through all this, and you and you didn't get the paperwork from FEMA that said, meet us where your house used to be. And then FEMA said, okay, you didn't really need the money. Time to give it back. And I have copies <sighs> of the threatening letters from FEMA. I have copies of the letters that say, we'll garnish your wages. We'll take your income tax return. We'll put you in jail. These people oh are now being gosh. threatened after this horrible after- escape of a fire. That's devastating. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And it's all in it's all in the book. Dang it. It's all in the book. Good. Good. One more thing before we go on to your next project, uh, or next couple projects. Um, but uh do you it sounds like you don't know quite for sure when it's gonna be out, sometime this spring or summer? Yes, um, uh, what somebody told me was as soon as I can get it finished and to them, they would try and get it, turn it around in eight weeks. Ah, so okay. I'm really hoping to have it out by the 1st of June. I would have said the sooner, but it, this, this story is so enormous. I'm actually flying back out to paradise at the end of the month to go to one of these FEMA meetings. Um, I called the congressman that, that uh, represents these people and they wouldn't even let me talk to someone on the phone. They told me I had to email them. I emailed all of them. No one responded. Um, then I said, well, what about the man I'm standing with, the man who's being threatened? And they said, he has to go into one of our offices. So I'm actually going to go back and pick that man up in my rental car and take him to the congressman's office. Um, mm. You know, because these people are, they're, they're absolutely devastated by what happened to them. And on top of that, they're being threatened by the government. And this gentleman, he's his social he's an elderly man, his social security check will be garnished by the federal government if he doesn't pay back the FEMA money. What in God's oh name is gosh. that all about, you know? Uh, really yeah, well welcome to our bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, it's pretty crazy. On to on to more positive notes. Um before <laughs> see, how, we, see how sad it is. Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um before we delve into your new project, tell us how or why you turned your considerable talents to fiction. I'm talking about Magic Diary now. If I were still teaching, I would require students to read the Magic Diary. It's five stars on Amazon. I think it's a marvelous book. How would you describe Genevieve and how how the book highlights both healthcare system and history without giving away any spoilers? 
Okay. Um, well, I, I have always wanted to write fiction. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to write, remember airport movies where the airplane movies where the, the plane was going to go down and some hero on the plane was going to save everybody. I used to write books when I was like 13. I call, they were called Busport. Busport one, but everybody was on the bus and it was this, you know, 13 year old from junior high who saved everyone. Of course, that was me. Um, <laughs> but I, I've always wanted to write fiction. And, um, and I just couldn't, you know, because there's, a, there's a, a luxury to being able to sit down and write. Um, and I felt compelled to write my whole life, but I had to make a living. So I always wrote nonfiction because somebody would pay you to write a 700-word story that isn't going to wait around for you for six months while you write a novel. Um, but I, I had the opportunity to spend six months writing a novel uh, a couple of years ago, and it was it was just so much fun and and so exciting to. Uh, I mean, uh, this is probably the story of my ego. If there's a psychiatrist listening, they might want to just lock me up now. But um, I get to pick 15 of my of my favorite people out of history, and pretend that I was them, and write to a little girl. Um, and that was a blast. So the the people out of time that write to my little heroine Genevieve. Um, she, th- these people are real. The things that they do, that they tell Genevieve about, those are real. But of course, it's my voice writing writing to her because, and and it was fun because Harry Truman writes to her, and I read a bunch of Harry Truman's letters to his wife. So um, they, there are voices out there you can try and copy, you know. And uh, and so it, it, what happens is this little girl, she's sick and she's struggling and. And her teacher gives her this quote-unquote magic diary, and some people out of history write her and help her through her journey. Um, I have tried to work with a lot of hospitals on the book because it is about a little girl and true life healthcare reality. Because I learned so much about healthcare because I have a son with a birth defect, and I got to meet all these kids in the hospital when he was in the hospital, and it was an opportunity. You know, my son is now. I'm the luckiest woman alive because when my son was three, a doctor operated on him and saved his life. And as long as he doesn't run in front of a bus, he should live to be a nice old man. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I got to know these kids and I, I saw what they, they, I mean, they're such wonderful people. And the best thing about a sick kid is they don't care that they're sick. They're going to live today like as much fun as it possibly can be. And the best thing I learned from a dying child was that you're not dead yet. And oh. these kids have amazing attitudes. And so I wanted to put these kids in the book. And so I've talked to hospitals about it because I thought, you know, here's a, these, are, these kids are real. Um, and I, hospitals, because they could use it as a fundraiser. And all the proceeds, I'd be happy to donate to them. But it's the truth about healthcare in the United States. It's the truth about having to have a spaghetti dinner to save your kid's life because your doctor bills have made you sell your car. You know, the truth of the healthcare system in the United States is in there. Um, and luckily most of the country has ex- least expanded Medicaid to include children, but that doesn't right. mean that it, you don't have a lot of expenses when your kid is sick, that you don't have to drive back and forth 50 miles to the children's hospital, um, that there aren't all these other expenses. You have to lose work because of chemotherapy for your child all the things that you have to live through that are. And so when I, when I share this book with hospitals, I think that they're like, yeah, no, thanks. 
<laughs> Reality is such a terrible thing. But it is fiction, and, and there aren't really any dead people that come back to life, although Albert Einstein is in the book to explain the theory of special relativity because he, relativity, because he believed that time travel was possible or that we lived in different planes at the same time. Um, anyway, so I try to like get rid of it. If you don't like ghost stories, then you've got Albert Einstein to talk you out of it. Um, there's a, a, I think, a very fun character. I hope she's fun, uh, Mrs. Mattingly, who's a psychic, who tries to approach it from another angle. And then, of course, Mother Anne Seton comes and talks to the girl because everybody's praying for her. So I tried to get all the aspects of what could be explaining. But it's still a mystery at the end. Only you can guess who was actually writing to Genevieve. Yes. <laughs> well, we won't spoil that. Um, we've got a, a few minutes left, um, and we don't want to end before we uh, take a look and hear from you about um, Princess of the Park. Um, I think we already mentioned that this is also focuses on homelessness, but it's it's a somewhat unique twist, I believe. I mean, it's fiction. Um, so it's a far cry from your nonfiction book. Um, and it's also a children's fiction book. Um, and uh, in this book, a homeless woman provides a safe zone for children to play, uh, pretend they meet for tea. Um, but it, it contains a whole lot of commentary on society, not only society's tendency to ignore homelessness, but also some um, other aspects of um, children's lives who, who maybe aren't, um, who, who struggle with different types of difficulties. Uh, Want to tell us a little bit about that and um, the plan for publishing that? Sure. That's um, uh, this new book, Soul of the Princess of the Park. Is uh, I wanted to try and get away from the sad stories of homelessness because it really does turn people off. Uh, and I'm not I'm not faulting anyone from that. I speak at a lot of churches, and they're still standing. But um, there's <laughs> one church I spoke at. This man said to me, "You're you're you know my normal shtick uh, about homelessness. You're you're trying to push me out of my comfort zone." And I said, I'm sorry, I'm really not. I'm just telling you what I know. If you're leaving your comfort zone, you're doing that, and you should be proud of yourself. But I'm not doing that. You're doing it. You're stepping outside your comfort zone. You're sitting here with me. And so this book is a way to hopefully tell a little story without pushing people out of their comfort zone or making them feel like I'm doing it to them. Um, and it's for like that third to fifth grade audience, basically. They're a bunch of little kids, maybe eight to 12 years old, and they hang out uh-huh. in the park with this nice old lady. And they, at first, they don't understand that she actually lives there. They just think she meets them there and they have tea parties and play Uno and, and have some fun. And she teaches them about the squirrels and the birds and the flowers. Um, and as the story unfolds, you learn more, but it's a, you know, it, it really shows this woman to be what I know homeless people to be, which is loving and, and inclusive and part of a community. Um, there's a whole community of people I've seen who, you know, we've got a, a homeless mom with some kids and another a homeless person gives them a ride that has a car, gives them a ride for groceries. I've, I've witnessed kindness, this horizontal kindness for a decade 
at running shelters. And it, so it, to pull that into the story and to try to sell this, tell this happy, like, like sure, it really, really is lousy that we have homelessness. But please don't discount that experience as anything less than a community and loving neighbors. The homeless people in our towns are our neighbors. They aren't somebody else. And, uh, and so that's what this book is. And I'm really excited because um, Sonia Pitsy, who's the uh, head of, of regional um, McKinney Vental Homeless Education Outreach, um, is writing the lesson plans to go with Priscilla, the Princess of the Park, so that this book can actually be taught in schools. So oh, great. that um, teachers, yeah, teachers will have it to use as a companion to discuss all kinds of social awareness. And it's a four-part story, so the first part is is on its way out. We have a um, Pennsylvania Council of the Arts grant that is paid for an artist to put little spot illustrations throughout the book. So um, the little girl, Magdalena, the twins, Beth and Jeff, little characters in the book, they'll just show up kind of like the old Beatrix Potter uh, books where you'd see little little line art of, of uh, Peter Rabbit, you know, in the corner of a page, but yeah. it would still have mostly words. Um, so it's really exciting that all of this is coming together. Um, and this, I hope, I hope it does get picked up as curricula in some of the schools. Um, I hope grandparents read it to their grandchildren, moms and kids sit down and read it to each other. You know, it's, it, it's hopefully something that will, you know, just remind us that regardless of socioeconomic strata, we can all still love each other and, uh, and benefit from knowledge that we each have to share with each other. That's the hope for the book anyway. And it's kind of got some fun spots. I think Jody's read it. Maybe she. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good. I think it's good. That's a good tie in, you know, and which is why I would re- make it require reading if I were still teaching. But why did you, you include both homeless and more fortunate children like Magdalena who live um, you know, at a home with their parents, and you describe that. Is that is that for contrast or inclusive? Um, it's. I just think it's because we can all be neighbors, and so I have a lot. You know, and Jillian is the little girl, and she's handicapped. She had spina bifida at mm-hmm. birth, and she lives in a wheelchair. But she's also from a really nice home where both both her parents are very loving. And but Jillian's one of the kids who goes to the tea party. Magdalena, as you mentioned. Um, goes camping and she camps in a campground where um, some people are living. Uh, she's not sure of that yet. Um, and then, you know, then, then of course there's, uh, there's Hugo and his brother Tomas who they live with their grandmother and their parents. Um, and uh, they, Hugo's an older boy and he doesn't understand why these little kids love hanging out in the park with this old lady. So there's a little bit of, but, but the idea is that, yeah, these kids can all have nice, really wonderful homes and still have fun with this nice lady in the park, and they don't have to fear her, um, even though their parents might. So there's some intrigue. There's a little bit of tension, hopefully, and some suspense. It is a novel, after all. It's not a, it right. isn't nonfiction. Right. So, yeah, hopefully it stirs a little, a little emotional attachment. Yeah, I you know, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read part of it so far, and it's. Uh, I think it's it's both charming and educational at the same time. So I think that's a good combination okay. for both kids and teachers and parents um, who want to read things. So I think we've uh, just about run out of time. We could probably go on a little bit longer uh, if we had time, but we we don't have it. So. 
um, I guess we got to wrap things up here. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's really fun to talk to you, too, and, and thank you for your program. It helps me get in touch with other authors, too. Yeah, good. Yeah, and thank you for coming on. We enjoyed having you. And a reminder to all of you readers and listeners out there, all our books are available at Sunbury Press's online bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers and bookstores. Um, and thanks to Pat once again for uh, the journalist and author for coming on her our show to uh, to communicate with us uh, a little bit more detail about her work. Um, and I also also want to mention uh, the Charles Bruce Foundation that helps artists and homeless uh, alike. Well, artists primarily through promoting their work, uh, but you also work for homeless. I, um, I'm really impressed by that. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening to the Milford House Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed our program. Our next program will be on Thursday, February 27th, when I'll interview Sharon Marchicello, who wrote Secrets of the Galapagos, the islands where Darwin visited. You'll, those of you who are familiar will recognize the name. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. And uh, that reminds me, Pat, I don't think we gave you a chance to say how people can um, get in touch with you. Do you have a website or a, a Facebook page? I do. I have a Facebook page. I'm also Pat H. LaMarche on Twitter, um, and I have an Instagram. And I have uh, just Pat LaMarche, all one word, P-A-T-L-A-M-A-R-C-H-E, that hotmail God, Hotmail's awful, but you can write to me there, Hotmail.com. And, uh, and the is a uh, is a website, but you can't write to me through that. So, so write to patlamarsh at Hotmail.com. But you can check okay. out a bunch of my writing at my website. Okay, well, thank you. Um, speaking of getting in touch, um, I'm on the web at www.sherrynolton.com, plus Facebook and Twitter. And I'm on Facebook.com slash Carlisle Crime Cases by J.M. West. You can visit my new website, too, CarlisleCrimeCases.com, all lowercase. And so until next time. Thank you, Pat, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again. Well, we won't actually see you. This is a podcast, but we'll talk to you again. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>